Well, we've entered into what many would call the most wonderful time of the year. We would call it that as well, but perhaps not for the same reasons in the iconic song by Andy Williams, but it is a wonderful time of the year. And we're starting today just a short three-week series called A Time for Christmas. Uh, This morning, we'll be looking at a time for salvation, next week, a time for celebration, and then on the 27th, a time for reconciliation. And just so you'll know, Pastor Jason and I are flip-flopping the next couple of weeks. We wanted to have some live uh, preaching in the venue, so he is up there this morning, and next week we will, uh, we will change places as we walk through this series together. Well, it's certainly the most unusual time for a Christmas celebration. In many places in our nation, uh, leaders are trying to cancel Christmas, or at least the religious expression of it. And let's be honest, it's not just over health concerns, is it? There has been a cancel culture toward Christmas for many years in our nation, and a desire to move the focus off Christ and make the message very simply, happy holidays. You ever get greeted with happy holidays when you're out shopping? My wife has taught me the proper response to that. You know what she says? Merry Christmas. And what's interesting is we often find that many of those employees are just doing what they have been instructed, but when you offer up a Merry Christmas and they're able to say from their hearts the same thing back to you, Merry Christmas. So I hope you'll practice that during this season. Well, because the focus is always trying to be taken off of Christ, we want to continually remember what God has done for us. And the message of Christmas is very simply and clearly stated in Luke chapter 2 and verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. That's the message of Christmas, that God sent a Savior. It's about the birth of Jesus, that God was going to make himself clearly known by sending a Savior through Jesus coming. We no longer have to wonder uh, what God was like or what he had planned for us. But, you know, we know the Christmas story so well that I think we've heard it so much, we don't think too deeply about Jesus coming. We, we don't ask many questions, and maybe we should. Like, maybe we should ask the question, in, in, in all the ways that God who could have forgiven our sin and, and made us right with him and, and give us eternal life, why did he send Jesus? Why did he send Jesus as a, as a helpless baby? Why did Jesus have to experience life as a human? Why did Jesus have to suffer in the way that he did to save us? Why? 1993, Mark Harris uh, wrote a song, many of you know, it's from the perspective of Joseph, it's entitled Strange Way to Save the World, and the the setting of the song is that Joseph is there um, at the manger, Jesus has been born, and he just has all these questions in his heart. Why me? I'm just a simple man of trade. Why him with all the rulers in the world? Why here inside the stable filled with hay? Why her? She's just an ordinary girl. And then he says, now I'm not one to second guess what angels have to say, but isn't this a strange way to save the world? You know, to us as men, the ways of God are certainly strange. Isaiah mentions in Isaiah 55, where God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts and your thoughts. Paul expressed that in Romans chapter 11 in that great doxology. Oh, the depth of the the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments 
and inscrutable his ways. His paths are beyond tracing out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? God's plan for our redemption, the purpose behind that first Christmas, is like anything we would have dreamed up. Why did he do it that way? You know, if you read through the Gospels, you'll notice that only Matthew and Mark specifically talk through the details of the birth, excuse me, Matthew and Luke talk through the details of the birth of Jesus. Mark starts with the baptism and temptation. John, it appears, doesn't share the Christmas message, but actually in that very first chapter in verses 1 through 3 and then down in verse 14, he shares the story of Christmas as well. Look with me in John 1, 1 through 3 and 14. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, John makes it very clear that Jesus was God. He existed with God from the beginning Jesus was pre-existent. He was the eternal creator. You notice that John said not anything was made without him. In verse 14, he says, he became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Literally, in the Greek, he became flesh and made his dwelling means he pitched his tent among us. Now, now think about that picture. Maybe you're at a, at a big campsite with a lot of your family and friends, and you have all your tents pitched around each other close by, and Jesus came and right in the middle pitched his tent. What does that mean? It was up close and personal. He chose to get up close and personal and to come and live among us. Why? Well, that's what we want to look at this morning. I want us to remember four benefits from Jesus coming to live among us. Four benefits that happened that first Christmas when he was born as that baby in a manger. Number one, Jesus came to demonstrate God in terms that we can relate to. He came to help us understand an infinite God. We, we have finite human minds, and our finite human minds can't come to a complete understanding, but Jesus came to bring deep truths about God down to our level. Jesus came so that we could have some sense of understanding the character of God and so that he'd be in a form that we could understand. Now, why is that important? Um, Anybody, especially seated down here toward the front, anybody down around this area ever not had baklava? Raise your hand. You've not ever had baklava. Okay. Okay. You two stand up. Oh, it's going to get worse. You're on our staff. You have to do what I say. All right. Baklava is made from multiple layers of this real fine pastry dough, real flaky. And kind of in between there, it's got ground-up nuts, sometimes pistachios, sometimes other things, and it's honey mixed in and kind of this paste and, and a little bit of honey glaze over the top. It's incredible. Do you like it? Maybe. You like it? Sounds good. How's it taste? Okay, if you would walk out over to this corner right here, and you would come to this corner right here, come on. You don't even have to put your mask on. Right there on the corner is a bag to your left. And in that, right here, right there, take that with you back to your seat. 
In that bag, I bought for you a Christmas gift. It's a piece of baklava. There's a fork in there. I mean, if you want to break into it right now, you can. But here's the deal. My description didn't help you at all, did it? You know what's going to help you? It's what the psalmist said in Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That's what Jesus did when he came for us. He came to reveal God in a way that we can understand. In John 14, Jesus is explaining to the disciples that he is the way to the Father. You remember in John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, the life. And he told the disciples, look, if you know me, you know the Father. I'm the way to the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. Well, Philip was a bit confused, and Philip said, look, Jesus, if you could just show us the Father, that'll be enough. That, that's all we need. And Jesus said, Philip, have you been with me so long? Listen, Philip, this is what I'm trying to tell you. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So while we don't physically see Jesus, while we didn't physically walk the earth with him, we have the record, eyewitness testimony of Jesus and how he lived and how he spoke and how he acted. And that helps us understand the Father. In Jesus, we see everything we need to know about the Father. Let me give you a few examples. We see in Jesus the power of God at work, the feeding of the 5,000. From five loaves and two fish, he fed 5,000 people and had more left over than they started with. You remember that 12 baskets of food were left over. <clears throat> we see the power of the Father in Jesus walking on the water and Jesus calming the storm when he was with the disciples in, in, in the boat that he has complete dominion over nature. We see the power of God in Jesus in the raising of the dead. You remember the widow from Nain? Her son was dead. There was a funeral procession, and Jesus interrupted that funeral procession and put his hand on that casket, that coffin, and raised that woman's son to life. It's sad. I think in a funeral procession today, if Jesus tried to interrupt, we probably wouldn't let him, but it would be wise if we did, wouldn't it? He raised her son, Jairus' daughter. She was dead. Everybody was weeping and wailing. He went in and laid hands on her and raised Jairus' daughter. Lazarus, simply with the word from his mouth. That's how powerful God is, just as in creation. He spoke it all into existence just by saying the word. Jesus, just by saying the word, brought Lazarus back to life. We see in Jesus the power of God. We see in Jesus the incredible love of God. You know, he had to love those disciples, didn't he? Especially Peter, to have the kind of patience that he had. And, and let's think of the fact that Jesus even loved Judas. You go back and read the account when Jesus betray, Judas betrayed Jesus, and you'll see that repeatedly during that evening, Jesus was reaching out to Judas, even called him friend, trying to get him to wake up and turn around and repent before it was too late. He loved even Judas. Think about his encounter with Zacchaeus. Jesus knew what, a, what an evil person Zacchaeus was. He was a tax collector, the worst of the worst. He'd made himself rich off the backs of his own people. Yet Jesus loved him and went to dine with him in his house. What about the, what about the lepers? What about the paralytic? What about all the sick people that Jesus touched? People who were probably unsanitary and smelly, but he didn't shrink back. His ministry wasn't one of just saying the word as God would do to heal them, but of touching them. He was a high-touch shepherd. Why? Because of his incredible love for people. He showed not only the power of God, the love of God, but the forgiveness of God. 
He's around sinners all the time, but continually demonstrating the grace and mercy of God to sinners. And probably the best example of that that most of us know is the woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. And she was brought and thrown at Jesus' feet with all those religious leaders there waiting to see what he would do. And knowing that the law said that someone caught in the very act of adultery should be condemned and stoned to death on the spot. And after Jesus dealt with all of her accusers, what did he say to the woman? Where are those who accuse you? Well, they've all gone, sir. Well, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And what about the incredible demonstration that Jesus gave us of the love of God when from the cross he prayed that God would forgive those who were abusing him, torturing him, putting him to death? You ever been in a country where you didn't speak the language? I remember years ago, my very first trip to Mexico before I learned much Spanish, and I still don't know much Spanish, just enough to get me in a lot of trouble. But the first time I went, there was, there was a man that used to be on our staff many years ago named Carlos Ictor, our worship pastor. And Carlos was very fluent, and I'll never forget uh, when we got to the pastor we were meeting with, they got in the front seat, I got in the back seat, and boy, they started at it. And I had no clue what was happening. And it was kind of a, a feeling of desperation of, hey, can somebody please help me? You know, before Jesus' concepts of God and an understanding of God was like a foreign language, Jesus came to be a translator for us. So he came not only to be a translator, not only to communicate Godness to us. Secondly, Jesus came to identify with us. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus understands us. He can sympathize with us. He, he never sinned, but he was tempted just as we are. Think about the fact that Jesus was born as a helpless baby. He, he limited himself as God. He chose to limit himself to a human body. He had to be fed. His diaper had to be changed. He had to learn how to walk. He had to live through childhood, through, through adolescence, and, and into adulthood. And during that human experience, he experienced what we experience. He, he got weary. He got tired. He got sick. He, he went through all the same things that we did. And for 33 years, Jesus felt what we feel, even temptation. And so he demonstrated God's understanding of us by living like us. That's why David in the 55th Psalm said that we could cast our burdens on him because he understands our burdens. He understands the weight that is on us. You ever gone through a tough time and had someone say to you, meaning well, hey, I know how you feel. But you knew they really, they'd not been where you are. They, they really didn't. They, they couldn't know how you feel. Listen, when Jesus says, I know how you feel, he knows how you feel. Jesus came to show us that not only can we know God, but God can and does know us. We can never say, regardless of what we're going through, what we're going through that, that he doesn't understand. He does understand, and, and, and he gets it. Jesus came to reveal God, to help us understand God and concepts of God in terms that we could never understand apart from him. Jesus came to uh, identify with us. And thirdly, Jesus came to show us how you live in a way that honors and pleases God. 
Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul wrote to the Romans, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We're, we're supposed to be different. We're supposed to have a different uh, mindset. We're, we're not to look like the world. We're not to live like the world. We're not to act like the world. First John 2, 6, you remember from a couple of weeks ago, whoever claims to be in Jesus must walk as Jesus walked. Well, Jesus wasn't just a good teacher. Everything he taught, he demonstrated how to live and act when God is in us. What did Jesus teach? Well, he taught that we're to love our neighbor. His neighbors wanted to kill him, but he still loved him. You see that all through the Gospels. Jesus taught that we're to pray for those who persecute us. What did he do from the cross to those who were persecuting him? He, he prayed for them. Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you have to be willing to forsake even your family. Listen, Jesus forsook his family. Jesus left heaven and came to earth. He left his home and he left his father to be with us. And so what you see in the life of Jesus is that he demonstrated what God's truth should look like when it's lived out in the flesh. He demonstrated, Romans 12, 2, what it looks like to be transformed, what it looks like to be, to be a living sacrifice and be totally different from society. Jesus came to reveal God, to help us understand God. He came to identify with us. He came to show us how to live most importantly. Jesus came to be the sacrifice for us. God's word decreed that the payment for sin of all mankind, for every man, every woman, the payment for sin was death. But because we sinned, we, we couldn't make that payment. But God can't die. Only a man, only a perfect man could represent all of us as men and receive God's prescribed penalty for sin, which is death. Paul says that's exactly in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, that's exactly what Jesus did. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross." So Jesus put himself in submission to the Father. He, he obeyed God. Even though he was God, he put himself under the Father, in submission to the Father. He obeyed God, and his death was part of God's plan. In fact, don't miss this. Jesus obeyed the plan of God, but Jesus also took part. He took an active role and bringing the plan to fruition. He was fully involved in God's plan that he would die for our sin. The plan for Jesus to die was premeditated, and the plan for Jesus to die was God's pleasure. Isaiah 53.10, he says it was God's will or God's pleasure to crush him. But listen also, the plan for Jesus to die was even Jesus' willing desire. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2 Paul says he gave himself as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He gave himself. What did Jesus say in John 10, verse 18? No one takes my life from me. I lay it down. Over and over through John, as you see him talk about the good shepherd, he says the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. It's a willing choice. 
Not something he was forced into. Think about this. God loved us so much, he let us be born knowing we would reject him. God loved you so much, he let you be born knowing you would reject him. After Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and God threw them out of the garden, he could have closed the womb of Eve and stopped it all right there, knowing that everyone born from Adam, from Eve, were going to be sinners who rejected and rebelled against him. But he didn't do that. In the days of Noah, when God found one righteous man and his family and he saved, preserved them in that ark, but destroyed the rest of the world, God could have chosen never to repopulate the earth after that. But that's not what he did. Jesus himself loved us so much that he planned his own sacrifice. We read in John chapter 1 and verse 3 that nothing was made apart from him. He was totally present in creation. He had a part in everything that was created. It was all made by him and for him and through him. That means that Jesus planted the tree from which the cross that he was crucified on was made. That means that Jesus put the iron ore in the ground from which the nails were made that pierced his wrist and his feet. That means that Jesus... placed Judas in his mother's womb. And Jesus, because we know Scripture says that all governments are established by God, Jesus set up the political machine that would condemn him. He did all that. He wasn't just an unwilling participant in God's plan. He was not only a willing participant, but he was actively engaged and involved in the plan of him coming to die for your sin and mine. And Jesus' death sentence was pronounced at his birth. So for us, we're given life for those who believe because he conquered death for us. You remember that he said to Martha when he was there for the occasion of raising Lazarus, he said to Martha in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? For those who believe, Jesus has conquered death. Listen, Christmas is not just about a, a baby in a manger. That's just the prologue. Christmas is about a Savior. Jesus came to save us, and we must not lose sight of that. And many of us have, have, have known him for so long, we've forgotten what it was like. We, we've forgotten that he came to save us from the effects of sin. Do you remember what it was like before you came to Christ? Do you remember what it's like for those that you know, loved ones and friends and work associates and neighbors who, who don't know Christ, they've not been set free from sin? Here's what the Bible says. For those who don't know Christ, there is no peace. Isaiah 26.3 you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Romans chapter 15 and verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Spirit. 
I mentioned last week the coronavirus has given us the greatest opportunity for a gospel witness ever, and that's one of the reasons, because more than ever, people are living in a day and age where there's no peace. Those without Christ also have no purpose. Psalm 139, verse 16, David said, all the days ordained or set aside for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God, you have given purpose to every day of my life. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Every one of us was created for a purpose. But if you don't know Christ, you don't know that purpose, you're not able to live out that purpose so there's no fulfillment in your life. You have no peace, you have no purpose, you have no hope. Paul in Ephesians 2.12, those who are separated from Christ are without hope and without God in the world. You know, we've had in the last month a couple of really difficult funerals here. All funerals are difficult, but when there are funerals of people who didn't get even their three score and ten, funerals of people who died at a young age, it's very difficult. But you know what's amazing? You can look at both of those families who've lost a loved one recently who was still young and in the prime of life, and you can look at them and say, how in the world are they in as good a shape as they're in? You know why they are? Because they have hope. They don't grieve, as Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4. They don't grieve as those who have no hope. Yes, there's tremendous loss and there's a tremendous void there, but they have incredible hope because they know that they and their loved one were in Christ. What else is true about someone who's apart from Christ? Well, you have no direction, no, no help for daily living. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, but you don't know the word. You don't understand the word. It, it makes no sense if you're apart from Christ. John 14, 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things. You don't have the Holy Spirit to teach you all things. to help you know how to navigate this life. Isaiah 30, uh, verse 21, whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. You don't have that direction if you're apart from Christ. Those who are apart from Christ have no idea how to navigate the difficulties and the challenges in this world. You have no security. John 10, 29, Jesus, in speaking about us, we're, we're in his hand, he's in the Father's hand, and no one can snatch us out. We're completely secure. First, without Christ is under judgment, under wrath, condemned. John 3, 36, whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath remains on them. Romans chapter 2 and verse 5, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. And then finally, you're under God's wrath, you're under judgment, and your experience is going to be eternal death in hell and a separation from God, John 5, 24, Jesus said, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. And down in verse 29 of John 5, those who have done what is good will rise to live. Those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. We need to remember what our condition was before Christ came. We need to remember that there are people in that same condition because they don't know Christ. Most of us, especially in 2020, are probably longing for Christ to return and tomorrow would not be too soon. 
but if he comes soon, what happens to those we know who don't know him? Hey, flip real quick. This, this week in our New Testament reading, we were in Revelation. Flip real quick to chapter 6. And, and let me tell you, we're going to get to Revelation next year. I said I wasn't going to teach it over, over Christmas holidays. We'll get to it next year. Let me real quick give you some, some very simple background to Revelation 6. This is during the time of the tribulation. Jesus has returned, not returned to the earth. He's returned in the clouds, returned for the church. That's what you see in 1 Thessalonians 4, down in verse 13 and following, that, that we meet him in the air. He hasn't set foot on the earth again. And there's a time of tribulation that's going to occur before Jesus returns. And, and in Revelation 6, John describes the first six of the seven seals. This is what is happening to those who are still on earth before Christ returns to set everything in order. And I'm going to move pretty quick through this. The first thing you see, starting in verse 1, um, the lamb, that's Jesus, opens the seals. Uh, the four living creatures say, with the voice like thunder come. Look at verse 2. I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, that's not Jesus, because he isn't returning yet. You notice the rider has a bow, but not an arrow, so it's not a conquering by war. That conquering is probably the Antichrist. Verse 3, the second seal. Verse 4, uh, out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. That rider is coming to inflict war all over the earth. Verse 5, the third seal. I looked, behold, a black horse. Its rider had a pair of, pair of scales in his hand. I heard what seemed like a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a Daenerys. A quart of wheat would give you one meal. A Daenerys was an entire day's wages. You'll be able to buy one meal for a day's wages or three quarts of barley, three meals for a day's wages. Do not harm the oil and wine. In other words, you can buy the wheat or the barley, but you're going to have the oil. You're going to have money to buy the oil uh, to, to cook it with, to make anything with it. What is this incredible famine that is going to come on the earth? Verse 7, the fourth seal. I looked, and there was a pale horse. Its rider's name was Death. Hades followed him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with famine, with pestilence, with wild beast. Once famine comes, it's very easy for pestilence or plague to take a lot of people out, and wild beasts as well. So a fourth of the earth is going to be wiped out. The fifth seal, you see those are who have been slain for the Lord of the Lord, these are people who during the tribulation come to Christ, they are slain, is martyred, that they're asking God, when are you going to set this straight and avenge our blood? They're given a white robe, told to rest a little longer until the full number are complete. Sixth seal. It was a great earthquake. Now, earthquake doesn't even begin. It's like no earthquake that has ever been experienced on the face of earth in all time. Earthquake was so great, the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. Look at this. The stars of the sky fell to the earth. The sky vanished like a scroll being rolled up. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. So great the earthquake is. Look at this. Verse 15, kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful, everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling us on the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great 
day of wrath has come and who can stand? What, what's happening here? They are so frightened by everything that is taking place, they would rather the mountains and the, and, and, and the rocks fall on them and kill them than they would have to face the wrath of the Lord. Okay, that's, that's just a portion of the horror that's going to fall on those who've rejected Christ, and then there's eternity in hell. This morning, we are reminded that the Christmas story is not just about a baby in the manger. Christmas marks the coming of a Savior, a Savior we desperately needed because of our destitute condition. And as we move toward Christmas, I want us to think clearly about Christmas, about the gift of God's Son, about, about the debt of gratitude and service we owe him. Most importantly, I hope that we'll think about how we can share that gift with a world that still is desperately in need because they don't know the Savior has come for them.